This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, I'm Cassie Huff. I'm so glad you could join me for the Country Hour today. Coming up, big money has been put towards South Australian research to reduce methane emissions in grazing sheep. And increasingly we are seeing major wool brands um, making commitments to becoming carbon neutral by a certain deadline. Even though they don't really understand typically the scale of that commitment, it's a, it is a significant commitment and, you know, wool buyers uh, are supportive of anything that, that improves the sale, the, the value of the product to the end user. I'll have more on that. And you'll hear what the Premier is up to in the Riverland this morning. He's taking a visit around the region as a power of water is heading down the River Murray towards the state as we speak. There is quite a lot in the river at the moment as well. But first to harvest and this warmer weather is helping farmers get cracking with harvest with receivals at grain silos in the Riverland, York Peninsula and Upper EP over the weekend. With bumper crop expected this season, Vaterra is adding more storage across the state and uh, organising extra accommodation for workers, although last week we did hear about some concerns in the upper north about the amount of uh, storage in that part of South Australia. General Manager of Operations Gavin Kavanagh tells Eliza Berlage the company is still actually recruiting though for some positions at later starting sites. For a couple of our later starting sites, we still have applications open, but for many of our sites, we've been able to close our applications off to our harvest workers where we have the appropriate numbers in place. Uh, there was that initiative for us referring a friend and encouraging people to return who've done harvest before. Has there been much take-up of those initiatives? Yes, they have. We think those initiatives have been quite successful in helping us get to the overall number of harvest workers we seek to ensure we can provide this service to the growers. So with a lot of those harvest positions filled, of course, the, the next question is um, how things are going with um, uh, temporary accommodation for some of the sites. What stage is that up to? We've introduced or put temporary accommodation at four sites across the state, at Kimber, Riddell, Wolseley and Pinaroo. They're all at slightly varying stages. For example, Kimber, we've actually got some of our harvest workers already in those sites, whereas at Pinaroo and Wolseley, we've just put in the finishing touches to uh, building those sites and, and all of them will have harvest workers in over the next two to three weeks. That's one part of our accommodation strategy. The other part is we do work with local accommodation providers and really conscious of that where there is accommodation in those towns and there is local accommodation that we source lots of local accommodation as well. And have you had much cooperation on that so far? Yes, we have. I think in essence we must probably provide an accommodation in a range from around 15 to 20 sites across the state with the majority of that being through local accommodation providers. I understand with the amount of grain expected for this year that there's been a need to reopen or recommission upgrade some silos. Uh, yeah, can you tell me about that process and where that's up to? Yes, yeah, so, uh, to accommodate the bumper harvest, um, we, we did or we are investing in additional storage to ensure we can meet the growers' needs. We've added additional storage across the Air Peninsula, Mallee and South East and 
and that's through a combination of recommissioning closed bunkers, uh, sheds or sites, and also building new sites. So approximately 12 sites we've got that in place for, and those projects are still all at various stages, with some of them totally complete, and some of them we're still working through with the contractors in terms of uh, getting those finished in time for the harvest period at those sites. Gavin Kavanagh, the Manager for Operations with Viterra, speaking with Eliza Burlach. And animals, and how often have you looked at a policy or program designed to help farmers and thought, that just asked me, I could have actually made this work. When it comes to surging wild dog and pig numbers, that's exactly the approach of two feral animal control syndicates being led by landowners but managed by their local council. It's seen the number of participants rise by 17% and now the National Wild Dog Action Plan says it could be a model for other regions. Scott Henshin is a mixed cropper and cattleman who happens to also be a local councillor and he tells Kelly Buchanan it's a necessity born out of the incredible wet weather. We have encouraged within the South Burnett syndicates, landowner-run syndicates, where they be wild dog syndicates to try and eradicate or control wild dogs. Involved in one myself as a primary producer and have a professional. Again, we have engaged a professional to do that job. Most primary producers don't have the time to go and do it themselves or they do it periodically. So to be able to have a syndicate that's managed by the landowners and engaging professional people it takes a lot of the onus off the primary producers. And again, we've had some fantastic results there with the numbers that have been eradicated in the past few seasons there. And so do you think that's really the success of this program, that it was the syndicates came together themselves, they took the lead on it, but the council's been able to support that work? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, one of the things, when you want to start something like this, you don't want to start another entity like because you have to have bank accounts, you have to have presidents and vice presidents and secretaries and treasurers and all of that. The South Burnett Council has been very, very enthusiastic and encouraging in supporting these groups and that they become the trustee for them. So everything's done within the council. They manage the funds in relation to the syndicates and then the, the professionals that trap or shoot the wild dogs, for argument's sake, they then go and deal with the council in the distribution of the monies. And how that's set up varies from syndicate to syndicate. That's controlled by the syndicate, not the council. You know, we certainly encourage And look, every model doesn't work for every district either. I stress that. Like, that's something that the landowners have to work on as to what suits them best. And given that it has been such a good season for pest animals, do you think this made a big difference in dealing with that pressure on your property and the property of the other landowners? Well, it's a starting point, Carly. I mean because of the unprecedented wet and people not being able to get about, which makes it very hard to access country. But, I mean, with, and I can't stress the unprecedented wet season in the last, well, it's now 12 months. It started to rain in November 2021, and I think we've had something like, in the old scale, 40-odd inches in, in our area alone, which is, is almost, if not double, but it's well up on our annual rainfall. So it's been unprecedented rain. So it's been beautiful, but at the same time, there's always, if you solve one, one problem, you sometimes create another one. I wouldn't say we're getting on top of them because when we have seasons like this, I mean, they can have multiple litters per year, so numbers can grow very, very quickly. And what's being done is great, but there certainly needs to be more done. And if we can encourage more syndicates or participants in the baiting program, I mean, like I stated before, up 17% to what was previous done and to encourage 77 landowners, that's a good start. You said you do your mixed cropping and cattle. What have you got in the ground at the moment? 
I've got a winter crop in the ground at the moment, and that's both barley and oats. We were anticipating to chop it for silage, but we can't get on the country as most winter crop areas are experiencing exceptionally wet conditions and struggling to get it off. So uh, if I can harvest anything this season, I'll be I'll be very grateful. But that's Mother Nature; she's a powerful girl. I guess I guess one thing I could add, Carly, with that, like the damage that the wild dogs and the feral pigs do. Uh, it's it's hard to put a price on it, but I can tell you firsthand from experience and being a primary producer both in the cattle industry, the damage they do, wild dogs do to the cattle industry is enormous because you can't send animals to too many places that have had damage done to them with a wild dog. And the feral pig in the cropping industry is massive. Like They're destructive animals that can destroy a crop in a matter of a night or in a couple of nights. To put a price on that, and we've done some figures, it's quite scary, um, depending what the season is, be it summer crop or winter crop. But pigs in a night can do tens of thousands of dollars in one night in, in just one property. Uh, so multiply that by days or weeks. And, and in the beef industry, if you've got cattle, what we've not seen before, the prices over the last two or three years have been exceptional and are still at the current moment. But I mean... You know, any beast today is worth virtually a minimum of $1,000, and from there you head up. So, you know, the damage to the primary production industry is massive. Queensland farmer and South Burnett councillor Scott Henshin speaking with Kelly Buchanan. It's 14 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. South Australian researchers are going to take the lead on some research adapting existing technologies that could help in reducing methane emissions in grazing sheep. Researchers from the Department of Primary Industries and Regions SA will look at different methane-reducing additives I should say, to feed to sheep via trough water. PERSA has been awarded nearly $700,000 from the Australian Government's Methane Emissions Reduction in Livestock Program and AWI has chipped in an extra $300,000 for the research as well. Angus Island is the AWI Program Manager for Eco Credentials and explained to Brooke Nindorf what this funding will go towards. AWI has been looking at where the hotspots are in, in the, the life cycle of, of sheep and, and, and more broadly of bull clothing the, it's clear that it's the farming stage that is the major point of release of, of greenhouse gases. And so it's been our focus for a number of years now to mitigate or, or reduce methane emissions from sheep. And we've been working with organisations like PERSA in South Australia and the other state departments of agriculture um, and universities in the main wool producing states to come up with a, a program of research to identify the most effective methane-reducing supplement that can be added to the diet of sheep. This is being done through PERSA, which obviously is South Australian, but is it something that can be used Australia-wide as well, down the track? Yes, no, definitely. Um, we're looking for you know, an Australia-wide solution, and PERSA is you know, an important part of that. And, and we're not putting all the eggs in one basket as in terms of which might be the most effective supplement to add to the feed of sheep, but a number of them are sort of rising to the top, you know, that you might be aware of the, the seaweed asparagopsis. It's been shown to have the potential to reduce methane emissions from sheep by as much as 80% when those sheep are in, um, in a pen study where their diets can be controlled. And we're now wanting to progress that out into the 
paddock situation uh, for extensive grazing that exists in South Australia and other states and try and answer the questions that need to be addressed to see whether it'll work in that environment. You know, will it be, will the sheep take enough of it um, to to have the effect, uh, you know, to have a significant uh, reduction of methane? Will it be safe for the sheep? Will it affect their reproduction? Will it affect the meat that might come from those sheep? There are many um, questions to be answered. And uh, so we're at, really at the beginning of this phase of research, looking at how effective it will be in, in grazing scenarios. Do you know what other um, additives there will be trialled um, via this, this trough water? Yes. Yeah, so in addition to the, um, the seaweed asparagopsis, there are plant-based uh, essential oils that have also been shown to reduce methane. There's quite a number of, of different products that are, have this effect. As I say, we don't really know which one will be ultimately successful, so we want to have at least three or four in the research uh, so that we don't miss an important one in, along the way. You touched on this a bit before, Angus, but AWI, why are you so committed to looking at reducing this environmental impact? Yeah, sure. Well, every industry uh, globally is probably looking to reduce its environmental footprint. And the very first step in, in that is to understand where your environmental hotspots are. Climate change is probably the most significant and concerning uh, environmental impact we're having at the moment. And uh, so it's a focus area for us. We undertook a what's called a cradle-to-grave life cycle assessment for wool clothing, you know, looking at the farming stage, the wool processing stage, the use stage where people are wearing and washing their clothing and ultimately the end-of-life stage when that clothing biodegrades or, or goes to landfill to really understand where our industry's hotspots were for things like energy use, it was the processing stage, which was the really big and important stage. So if you're looking to cut down use of fossil fuel resources, that's the stage you'd look at. But for when it came to uh, climate change, it was clearly the farming stage. And most of that emissions from the farm, from sheep farms, are actually processes associated with the animals. So it's the, and, and primarily uh, it's the methane that is generated by bacteria in the stomach of sheep during digestion of pasture uh, and, and that's belched out by the sheep as they, as they graze and methane is quite a significant greenhouse gas so it's the primary target for this area of research and uh, the federal government uh, is you know, they're allocating $29 million in this program called Merrill, which is Methane Emission Reduction from Livestock and uh, we're really pleased uh, that the government is doing that and especially pleased that they are supporting projects such as PERS's uh, project, which uh, we are also supporting. With your wool buyers, do they look at projects like this and funding that goes into a project like this favourably? Like what, what do they think of, of projects like this one? Look, I think wool buyers are closely connected to the market. They are uh, aware of what brands are doing and, and what brands are prioritising. And increasingly, we are seeing major wool brands um, making commitments to becoming carbon neutral by a certain deadline, even though they don't really understand typically the scale of that commitment. It's a, it is a significant commitment. And, you know, wool buyers are supportive of anything that improves the, um, the, 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 the scale, the, the, the value of the product to the end user. Um, so, um, you know, the, you know, in our, our experiences, they've been very supportive of this.
Angus Ireland uh, from AWI speaking there with Brooke Nine. Oh, sorry, that's not uh, Angus Ireland. Oh, yeah, Angus Ireland speaking with uh, Brooke Nindorf there. Now, uh, if farming is to help Australia meet its international climate obligations, the way nature is managed on private land must be a consideration. Philanthropic group the Madoc Foundation says better management of natural capital will help farmers' bottom line and better the environment. The foundation's CEO is Michelle Gorton. Here's some of her thoughts. We need to think about the nature and climate relationship. And so in addition to thinking about how do we mitigate carbon emissions, we also need to think about what is the relationship of you know, nature loss, biodiversity loss on emissions. We know that climate change um, and nature are, are deeply interrelated. We need a stable climate for nature to survive and thrive. And similarly, you know, an inverse relationship means that uh, an increased level of emissions. So... We need to think about more than just reaching a baseline. We need to we not need to do more than set a floor. We need to think about how we're going to improve and how sustainability and that meaning will change over time. Um, just reflecting on personal conversations I've had this week, another farmer put to me that agriculture was responsible for far less emissions compared to industries like the fossil fuel industries. Um, yet we've seen this methane pledge from the Australian government and governments around the world just in recent times. Do you think there are opportunities there, though, to to contribute or to offset the emissions from other industries? Absolutely. I mean, that said, though, there's a lot of work to do in understanding what our carbon sequestration potential is. I mean, the opportunity that Australia has with the landmass of its size, you know, 427 million hectares, of land under agricultural production, excluding production of, um, you know, of, of, of um, timber plantations, for example, that's a huge carbon sink potentially. You know, and we need to understand what is our carbon sequestration potential, both from a from a tree carbon and and um, terrestrial carbon perspective, but also soil carbon. And there's still a lot of work to do. We know there have been inklings and and um, case studies of, of examples of you know, really strong potential in high rain, rainfall areas in Australia. And we need to know more about that. This week, large parts of Australia are in flood. People are dealing with um, current emergencies. Can you understand how they might see this as nothing more than a talk fest that is not connected to their everyday? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is, you know, the work that we're doing with Farming for the Future is actually an example of real, you know, work on the ground. We are really trying to understand what it is for farmers what they need, what is the expanded kind of information and tool set that they will need to manage in kind of constantly evolving and difficult conditions. Producers are at the forefront, at the crucible of climate change. And if we don't help them and invest in the kind of skills development that's required to manage land, uh, including in drought, including in flood, um, we are going to do a huge disservice to our regional communities. What do you think is the potential financially for Australian farmers in terms of um, capitalising on, on natural capital? So we engaged PwC uh, to, to do some estimates around this and um, last year they prepared a paper for us called Farming for the Future and their estimate was that it could contribute something like an additional 40% to net profits for farmers if they had a better understanding of uh, the contribution that natural capital makes from their farm business. And that's just about literally expanding the information set that they have at their disposal when they choose to make business decisions. That's 40% 
simply by advertising what they're doing as being... No, no, that's by making investments in natural capital. So small-scale studies have shown that those farmers that are more invested in natural capital and who, who have an understanding of how it's contributing to their farm business are more profitable, they're res- less reliant on inputs, their, their, their production is less variable. So um, there are a whole range of kind of moving parts in terms of uh, the makeup of their, their business that, that seem to be benefiting from from investing more heavily in, in, in nature as a kind of powerhouse for their farm. So what we're trying to do with Farming for the Future is, is look at some of these studies and do them at scale across Australia to understand if these relationships and these inklings that we're seeing from these small-scale studies are real. Michelle Gorton from the Madoc Foundation speaking with Kath Sullivan before heading to Cairo for the latest Global Climate Conference, which kicks off today. We'll head to the Weather Bureau now. There is a total fire ban across the Eastern Air Peninsula, but Jenny Horvat, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, has more. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Yes, so we do also have that fire with the warning out for the Eastern Air Peninsula. So we've got those fresh to strong and gusty north to north easterly winds and a hot dry air mass. So um, that's contributed to that. And we've also got our low pressure system coming across from Western Australia. So we have seen a bit of lightning activity today out on the um, Northwest Pastoral District and the West Coast District. And we are expecting those storms to, to continue and to extend east um, during the course of today. Probably not getting too much further than the Air Peninsula um, by this evening, but nevertheless we are expecting those thunderstorms to continue this afternoon and to um, potentially become a bit more frequent in parts and we will be monitoring those, especially about northwestern parts of the state today for some damaging wind gusts with those as well. So we will see the system continue to move east on Wednesday, so that trough and low moving through. So that shower and storm risk continuing to move east. So moving into more central and eastern districts by the end of um, Wednesday. So again, we'll be monitoring those storms for gusty, um, for gusty and damaging wind gusts. So generally, that'll be more across our central part districts and sort of straddling the two pastoral districts during that area and potentially pushing into the Flinders and Mid-North later in the day on Wednesday. We'll We'll start to see those showers clearing from the very far northwest later on Wednesday and reaching those eastern border districts as it heads across um, Wednesday evening. Still the chance to be seeing some of that shower and thunderstorm activity overnight Wednesday into Thursday and then contracting to the east on Thursday, so crossing the, the border through there again. Again, we could be seeing some um, gusty thunderstorms on the Thursday, most likely um, near the eastern border districts through there. And um, just again, ahead of that system, we'll still be having those hot um, northerly winds. So again, we're potentially looking at some elevated fire danger again and probably most likely around eastern Air Peninsula again on the Wednesday. We do have our next um, trough and low pressure system starting to come into the west of the state on Friday. So not a big reprieve in between systems this time round. So we will see that coming through with showers and storms from the west on Friday, moving more broadly across central and eastern districts um, across on Saturday. And on Sunday, we'll still have the chance to see some of that shower and thunderstorm activity is um, contracting to the east through there and leaving us in a cooler southwesterly airstream to start the um, start the next working week and potentially still seeing some showers around the agricultural area on the Monday through there. So some very hot conditions um, possible today and um, 
into the midweek, especially across the north ahead of this first trough. And then, yeah, things becoming substantially cooler following the next low and trough coming through later in the week and into the early weekend. Looking at some of the rainfall that we are expecting to see, it's going to be highly variable depending on the showers and thunderstorms, but broadly across the um, the state by the end of Saturday, we are looking at falls of 2 to 10 millimetres, increasing to 10 to 20 millimetres about the agricultural area. And we could be seeing some heavy falls with thunderstorms of sort of um, 10 to um, 30 millimetres, and they're probably more likely around the northwest pastoral west coast and air peninsula. And as we head into the weekend with this next low, maybe again seeing some of those heavier falls around the Flinders and Mid-North, but we'll watch this space. Absolutely. Keep you on your toes there this, this spring, certainly. Yes, is. yes, certainly is. Jenny Horvat there from the Bureau of Meteorology. And in the far west of New South Wales, the Upper Western's going to be mostly sunny tomorrow. The winds are going to pick up a little bit. Overnight temperatures will drop to between 15 and 20 degrees, but the daytime temperatures getting rather warm, 30 to 36 degrees. The Lower Western will be mostly sunny. Again, a bit of wind around overnight down to 14 to 19 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach 29 to 30. 35 degrees. We've got more to come on the Country Hour, including an update on what happened at the Struent fire over the weekend. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. I'm so glad you could join me today. Premier Malinowskis is in the Riverland today as the region prepares for flood. I'll have an update on some of the concerns and uh, the questions coming out of that part of South Australia. Also, a world shearing record has been broken. It sounds like it was pretty tough work. Feels sore, a little bit sore. I don't know how I feel actually. It's sort of just numb all over. I'll have more on that soon. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the state government has just announced that peak water flows into the River Murray are expected to be higher than previously projected. 150 gigalitres of water a day are now tipped to come into the river by early next month, with a moderate probability of the flow reaching 165 gigalitres each day. The previous forecast was 135. And the State Emergency Service says that preparations are already underway for low lying towns in the Riverland, which are expected to be hit by flooding next month. Water flows down the River Murray are currently about 90 gigalitres a day. The SES Deputy Chief Liz Connell says that sandbags are starting to be deployed to residents. And the head of one of Adelaide's biggest health networks says that some patients are still being treated in unconventional spaces as efforts to curb ambulance ramping continue. The Southern Adelaide Local Health Network includes the Flinders Medical Centre. Its CEO, Dr Kerry Freeman, has told a parliamentary committee that eight spaces that were formerly storage or treatment rooms have been converted. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that. Uh, um, thanks for that, uh, Matt. That was Matt Coleman there with the news. Now, as I was saying, Premier Malinowskis is visiting the Riverland today as the region prepares for flood water not seen in several decades. Daily flows are expected to reach 135 gigalitres a day in December, but there is the possibility that that could go as high as 150 gigalitres. Now, urgent repairs are also underway on dozens of levees in the Renmark Peringa area. Eliza Burlage has the latest. Good afternoon. 
it sounds like Eliza doesn't uh, isn't there. So we'll keep moving on because um, there's a lot happening in the Riverland today. Now, uh, with the the situation when it comes to grapes. Um, there's a lot of concern given that about a billion dollars has been pulled out of the Australian wine industry since China pulled out of the region. And uh, Rural Aid has uh, announced some financial assistance in the form of uh, uh, $500 prepaid cards for, uh, cards for farmers in Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania for uh, farmers that are also facing uh, concerns when it comes to these higher floodwaters. The organisation's chief executive, Don Walters, explains to Sophie Landau that farmers should register with Rural Aid for assistance. Two of our, our, our team of counsellors are, are, are based in South Australia and so they're um, on pretty regular contact with, with our registered farmers and probably like all the years of the rest of the country, we're all watching um, and listening really carefully to, to what's happening as the, the experts forecast what might happen with this massive water as it, as it flows through the system. So... We know that South Australia's time um, is, is coming as that water works its way through the system and, um, and we're just really um, there to help if and, if and when we're needed. And that financial support is currently available for farmers impacted by flooding in New South Wales, Victoria, Tassie. Um, at what point would farmers in SA be able to access financial relief if they're impacted by flooding? First that we're encouraging people to do is if they're not already registered with Rural Aid to do that. And when you're registered with Rural Aid, it means it's, it's so much easier and quicker for us to be able to, to get help and support to you. And, and we know that um, the financial support is, is really important on one level, but it's also the, um, the ability to be able to have a chat with one of, one of um, our counselling team. And that uh, in these current circumstances, when people are... Um, stressed and anxious and, and quite rightly so, given the circumstances, um, that becomes even more important. And then it's down the track and, and those other supports that we might be able to provide if they're required and, and that can, can include um, fodder for livestock. So jumping in early, getting registered with rural aids, that the absolute key at this stage and we'll continue to, to monitor what happens um, as the flood water works its way through the system. That was Rural Aid Chief Executive John Walters speaking there with Sophie Landau. It is coming up to 25 minutes to one. With ABC Listen, explore a whole new world of podcasts and live radio, like unpicking fast fashion in Veronica Milsom's podcast, Threads. The marketing tricks being used on us right now. Or learning to spend less and live better with Nazim Hussain's Pineapple Project. Do we all really need it? And if we do, how do we get it for cheap? The ABC Listen app. A whole new world of live radio and on-demand audio entertainment. Download it now from your app store. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi, you're listening to The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. Now, we were going to head to the Riverland, but we're still having trouble connecting. So uh, I thought I'd take you over to the Air Peninsula, where, like many industries, oyster growers are crying out for workers, with some even having to buy houses to use as an incentive. Many growers only need one or two extra workers, but even they are hard to come by. Brooke Nindorf has this story. On the west coast of the state, Smoky Bay Oysters General Manager Joe Pocock dreams of growing her business. 
But without adequate staff levels, it doesn't look like it will happen anytime soon. It's difficult. Uh, there seems to be a few more backpackers and uh, itinerant workers moving around. So that helps with um, seasonal uh, shortages. We can, we can start to fill some of those roles. But uh, the real challenge is find, finding permanent long-term staff. So that for us is, for that continuity is important. Definitely less um, seasonal workers coming through our area in Smoky Bay. I think there's, there's a few, um, they land, tend to land in the capital cities and because there's so much work everywhere at the moment, they're sort of not getting too much past that or they can fulfill their uh, regional and remote work closer to the, the major cities. She says at the moment two extra workers would be ideal, but more would be needed if they were to expand. I think it relates to how many boats you run and things like that. So next year when we commission another boat, we'll be looking for another crew. Like So yeah, we'll be looking to put on a, um, another person again. So trying to you know, expand, but it's difficult when you can't find the people to do that. It's difficult in terms of the um, recruitment. The skills training is really important, um, but also trying to just make our industry or assist our industry to become uh, an industry of choice um, particularly with our young people and people that have you know from the EP because it is a really critical uh, industry to the to the economy. With no rental houses in the area contributing to the problem Miss Pocock has resorted to purchasing a house in order to promise workers a bed. Well we try and to give make make our our roles attractive by um, guaranteeing that there is accommodation available so if you come you know you do have that security of, of somewhere to live and using that as an incentive to to work for us we also you know different farmers have different ways of incentivizing people to come into their roles so you know bonuses and things like that are really critical and the way that they are uh, that they're rolled out in your business so everyone does it differently Gazanda Oysters co-founder Carly Thompson says the oyster industry has not been officially identified as an industry needing workers. Um, I, I believe that aquaculture or even oyster industry in, in South Australia doesn't necessarily sit on some job market boards or industry things and so we haven't been identified as an industry that is lacking in workers and unless you've been lacking workers you're not going to attract that attention from your government departments or those contractors that work for them or training providers etc etc so realistically to get someone to come out and grow work for you growing oysters you just have to buy you make it attractive you pay above you offer incentives um, some people have gone as far as to house purchases in those remote areas to offer on-site housing. Yeah, you just got to be really creative, I think. And, and you've got to look after your workers. People who have a nice, nice people to work for and get looked after, they come back and they stay. She says it's the responsibility of industry leaders to incentivise people to come to work on the water. Um, we've got a really great team on, on board now, um, but we, did, we were looking for quite a while and um, I know that it is an industry-wide issue and it's really, really tough, particularly on the west coast, the further up you go. So Streaky, Smoky, Sejuna, there's guys not running their leases at full capacity because they simply cannot get the workers. And if they could get the workers, then where, do they go? where, are they, where will they live? So, you know, the rental crisis, the worker crisis, they're, they're an ongoing thing. Um, and sometimes you have to be a little bit innovative and think out the box and change maybe some, some of your roles or how you do things. But certainly is a massive, massive thing. But it, it's also on the SAOGA and the SAOGA board's short-term and long-term goals that accommodation and, 
and worker access are um, some key priorities to look into and help accommodate our industry. So looking at um, having rental opportunities maybe bought through the oyster industry or something like that? My personal opinion is that at some level we need to be looking at smaller, eco-friendly housing for everybody. Like We, we need to allow the people who industry-wise put food on tables, which is what South Australia really does, is that we have to help those areas and, and, and that one of those is housing. Smoky Bay grower Jo Pocock says she hopes having purchased the house will attract more workers, but like many other oyster farmers, they'll just continue to persevere and hope they can find more staff soon. I think in the regional communities, part of the, the culture is just to find a way, and so that's what we've been doing is finding a way, and it's something that we need to be mindful of for you know, uh, our workers' uh, health or our own health. So, um, yeah, it's important to try and find people to fill those roles so we're not working two jobs. Smoky Bay oyster grower Joe Pocock ending that story from Brooke Nindorf. And you can read more on his story online uh, at abc.net.au slash rural. It is 19 minutes to one. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, there was some terrible news over the weekend that there was a fire at Struan in the uh, southeast. Uh, the Struan Research Centre is a well-known research centre in this state. A lot of great agricultural research has come out of that centre. Fortunately, the historic homestead was not affected, but Saudi Executive Director Peter Appleford has been visiting the site to see just how much damage has been done. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I understand the research work appears to have largely been spared from the fire. What are things looking looking like? Um, yeah, so the fire, there was a main um, building with office space, um, one lab and some administrative space. That's been completely gutted. But most of the research data from the past has all been either previously reported or was you know, digitised. So we've saved all that. Um, no major research equipment was lost, which is great. Uh, lost a lot of computers and other electricals. Uh, but as uh, as these things go, it's probably not a bad result for us, really. That is, it is fortunate. So, so you're able to digitise a lot of that stuff. So, uh, do you know what the cause of the fire was? Uh, no, we don't know at this point in time. We're still working with the um, CFS on that. They're doing investigations. At the moment, it's still a bit hot down there, so they're um, they're not getting into it too much at this point in time. But we'll work with those, and when we know, um, work out whether we need to do anything different in the future. There was an ag tech demonstration site drop-in centre affected, though I understand. What are the details around that? Yeah, so the um, the ag tech drop-in site was set up at the administrative area there. So that's um, they've lost their TV screens and computers associated with that so we're just um, working around now at the moment to get some more monitors for them and computers and tv screens so we'll set that up as soon as we can in the in the old struan house so hopefully in the next few weeks we'll be up and running again so what's the plan now going forward uh we've relocated the staff to the top floor of the um old struan house so we're just facing up monitors and other computer and electrical equipment and getting them hooked up into the uh, internet and also making sure the Wi-Fi and mobile coverage is fine for them up there. And um, we're looking to have that all sorted in the next few weeks so they'll be back in business doing what they need to do to get the research done to support the prime industries of the state. 
I realise it's probably still early days, but do you have an estimate of what this damage bill could be? Uh, no, I've got no estimate at all, to be honest. Um, we've obviously got a large infrastructure cost if we um, for rebuilding the, the office space and the accommodation. Um, but outside of that, it, it's fairly small. It's a few computers, a few monitors and um, a bit of other equipment. So I think we've been very, very lucky today. It does sound it, given the calibre of research that does come out of the, the Struan Research Centre. It's good to hear that, that it sounds like you haven't lost too much. It's still obviously very expensive and, and a, a big blow, but it doesn't sound like it, it is as devastating as it could have been. Uh, certainly not. And um, there's one research trial we're going to have to recommence. But apart from that, we haven't lost any samples that weren't analysed. So um, it's a bit of a disruption rather than disaster. So that's that's a great result and the staff are looking forward to, to getting back into their business as usual. Well, good luck with the, the rebuild. I hope it is straightforward for you. Thank you very much. And thanks to, um, to everyone out there who's sent messages of good goodwill to the staff and also for the CFS and all the volunteers for helping us out over the last few days in regard to the fire. Thank you so much, Peter Appleford, the, the Saudi Executive Director, who has been visiting the site this week after that fire at the Struan Research Centre. It is a quarter to one. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. As I was saying, the Premier Peter Malinowskis is visiting the Riverland today as the region prepares for floodwater not seen in several decades. Daily flows uh, were expected to reach 135 gigalitres a day, but that appears to have changed and uh, urgent repairs are underway on more than a dozen levees in the Renmark Ringer region as well. Eliza Berlash has the latest. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cass. What's been the focus of the Premier's visit? Yes, so it's the first visit for the Premier since elected in March. Um, he's here mostly to oversee those um, upgrades to levy banks around the region. Uh, we've heard today that there's only been about six kilometres done of about 38 kilometres. Uh, so they are optimistic though that it should all be done by early December when those flows will get quite high. And I mentioned there that this time last week they were saying 135 gigalitres a day in December, but that could get higher. What have you heard today? Yes, so there's just been a press conference with the Premier um, and he's also met with Renmark Pringa Council. Um, those revised week- weekly flows have gone up again uh, from 135 gigalitres by early December to a very high likelihood of 150 gigalitres. Uh, the state government has also forecast uh, that there could be a possibility of flows reaching as high as 180 gigalitres a day as a result of that rain further upstream in the basin. My goodness, and uh, that must mean, as you were mentioning there, the, the work on, on the levee banks, are they going to be speeding up? What, is there a plan around that? 
Yes, so the Premier has said it's an important spirit of cooperation. Uh, it's not about blaming or, or talking about who should have done what when, uh, but at the moment just working as hard as they can, um, all the departments and with council to get those works done. Uh, there were some delays last week with that big rain forecast of about 100 million a day, so it was a bit of a pause in operations. And there was some, some theft of some diesel fuel and batteries overnight from some earth-moving equipment in Renmark. But uh, the, council, uh, sorry, the Premier says council and contractors Contractors are pulling out all stops to get it done um, ahead of that. those flows increasing in early December. The Premier's visit comes at a time that is uh, very difficult for many of the Riverlands wine grape growers. As I mentioned earlier, about a billion dollars has been pulled out of the wine industry in Australia from, from exports uh, as a result of the Chinese tariffs. And it's really starting to uh, come home now, the, the, uh, the heat home now. I understand, Eliza, there have been some requests for assistance. Yes, that's right. So uh, while tourism operators are waiting for some possible packages to support them amid high flows, uh, wine grape growers are really hoping that the Premier uh, might be able to make some time to speak with them. I've spoken with a number of growers who have requested assistance from the Premier as uh, input costs uh, rise, but grape prices decline. Uh, Mintu Bra, who grows uh, grapes at Kingston on Murray, uh, said he um, spoke to the Premier at a recent function. There was a celebration for Diwali, actually. People were saying congratulations to each other, but I told the Premier, please look after on the Riverland, especially on the wine industry. Wine industry is dying. Premier told me, yes, that is in my knowledge, and someone is going in this week to the Riverland. I said, no, you need to more attention. Please, you can give us attention, and uh, there is a lots of thing, price going down, and inputs are going high, and especially flood is on the door. So he promised me and he's saying in the next week he will come to uh, in the Riverland, someone come to Riverland and maybe they will meet to the people. What sort of support would you like to see from the government? I mean, coming to visit is obviously very important. Uh, actually, like I told you, there is a, if we are buying any fertilizer and it's three times more than last year and our price is going three times down from last year, so government can compensate little bit in middle of things and they can help us little bit from government rebates things and even they can just i'm paying lots of interest interest rate is going so if government want to help the farmer they can waive the interest this year lots of things to do if the government want and that's wine grape grower from Kingston on Murray, Mintu Bra, who's one of a number of growers, uh, part of the CCW cooperative, uh, who are asking for assistance from the Premier as they face uh, very low grape prices and lots of other high costs. Uh, Premier Peter Malinowskis also responded uh, to these requests for assistance this morning. Look, I have been in touch with some of them already. Um, we are trying to see if we can fit it in the, in the schedule today, but it's a lot to, a lot to get through. Look, this is a... This is a challenge across the industry. Um, it's not just the Riverland that's being affected in this regard, um, although, of course, the Riverland is not immune. And we're talking about, you know, geostrategic political considerations that informs not all of the challenge, but certainly a large number of the challenges that have been confronted by the, the, by the grape growers across the state. And that's something that we constantly are agitating that the Commonwealth Government seeks to resolve as quickly as possible. Um, the impact is real, um, but unfortunately, um, you know, 
the, the state government doesn't have it within its purview to control what Xi Jinping is doing in, in, regarding China's strategic decisions around trade. Um, but naturally, we're very keen to hear from people and where state government can provide assistance, we, we do. We are always looking to ways to create and open new markets um, to you know, drive the demand that underpins the industry. But we also know it's not just a demand issue, it's also a labour supply issue that is a substantial challenge. And that's where I've been advocating uh, rather assertively uh, to the federal government to get that migration tap turned back on in an appropriate way uh, and done and, uh, and seeking to provide an advantage to South Australia where we can. State Premier Peter Malinowska speaking there uh, in response to requests for assistance from Riverland grape growers as they face difficult vintage next year. So while the spotlight has uh, really been on the Riverland lately, uh, a lot of growers and residents hope that that spotlight turns into more support. Uh, those flows are expected to stay above 100 gigalitres well into early 2023. And the message at the moment is please keep coming and visiting. It's an amazing time. Uh, the frogs are singing and the floodplains are full. Uh, but yes, there will be a different Difficult time for some. She certainly is a mighty Murray at the moment. Hopefully, not too much damage occurs in her wake. Thank you so much for your time today, Eliza Berlage. Thanks, Cass. Eliza Berlage there from the uh, Renmark office, uh, just updating you on the latest from the Premier Malinowskis visit there today, as well as some of the concerns locals are facing. Finally, today, a world record, shearing record, was broken in Western Australia over the weekend. It was a three stand eight-hour merino lamb shearing record. It was at Wayne Peck's shearing shed in Western Australia's Great Southern Region and the three shearers were brothers Lou and Jim along with their, well, brothers, sorry, two brothers, Lou and Jim Brown, along with their cousin Imran Sullivan. All up, 1,603 lambs were shorn by the three of them in eight hours. That is backbreaking work. So they smashed the previous record of 1,208, well and truly. So let's join the action just before the end. So, Wayne, you've got a shearing record on your property today. How does it feel to be hosting? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's uh, just great to see all, all aspects of the sheep and agriculture industry come together and um, I think it's a really great initiative to have Lou, Jim and Imran approach me for this record attempt and, and to be able to, to showcase a lot of the good aspects of, uh, of the sheep industry. How long has this been in the making? Uh, Lou first chatted to me a couple of years ago actually when he, when he was shearing at our shed and said this three stand record while quite a demanding day was actually more achievable than some of the other world records and um, so we started thinking about it then and we nearly went ahead next year but then, then COVID slowed it down with getting uh, or just put a stop to it with getting judges from New Zealand um, and, and really that's better we've had another 12 months to prepare for it so it's, it's, it's been two years in the making. Yeah um, Maisie McFarlane and um, I'm a rouseabout. I just have like one second to even look at the boys. I haven't even been able to check it. Just making sure I'm watching the wool because there's just not t- any time to like really do anything else. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing. The um, help from my staff and the help from other people in the shearing industry, the, the amount of work that's been involved in preparing these sheep, um, or a, a lot of work yesterday getting the sheep ready uh, for today's shearing attempt. It it's just shows uh, the amount of teamwork 
and, and the positive energy that's um, happened when everything comes together. It's, it's a really fantastic day. Seeing the way they're sweating, oh God, I, I don't know how they're doing it, but they've pumping way harder than I've seen ever. So I'm pretty proud of like the way they're actually working. It's, it's amazing how quick they can, and efficient they can be. Like, we have hardly any skin coming out, which is awesome. So they're quite clean, but um, there's a little bit of stain on the roof, but that's, that's not too much really, so yeah. now how's it feel? Feels sore, a little bit sore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel actually, it's sort of just numb all over. Uh, I'm Jim Wadahu Brown, uh, we just broke the freestand record and uh, it was a tough effort. Yeah. How do you feel now? Very sore. And what was motivating you to just keep going along? Oh family, friends, crew, everyone that's put in the work. Was there a bit of competition between you and your brother and cousin? Oh, I've been sharing so well leading up, I thought I could stick with them, but today they horsed it out, so respect, no matter what, for everyone. And when that timer went off, how'd you feel? Oh, relieved, yeah, I wanted a beer. <laughs> and there was just such a massive crew behind you today, yeah, in front yeah, of you. Like... Yeah, they saw how hard I was doing it. How I, they what egged me on. I hit a wall, like, I was sore. When did you hit the wall? Just emotions, yeah. Not completely like I was going to stop or anything, just hurting, yeah. And what kind of got you over the line in the end? Well, the crew, thinking of everyone, what they've done for me, family, just respect. Couldn't let anyone down. Oh, we're prepared for it our whole lives, you know. It's been passed down from the last generation and you're just using the information that they've taught us, all the knowledge, that's where it comes from. And what was going through your head, especially in that last run? Oh, everything, heaps of things, mixed emotions. You just take it as it comes and just keep going, keep digging. So that's all you want to find all day, I think, is a rhythm, but it was sort of hard, like, um, sometimes you just get a hard sheep and then your, foot, get, your feet work will get in front of your blows and... Yeah, sheep will play up a little bit, but I don't know. They each have their own personality, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do, and you can tell right from the get-go whether it's going to be a good one or a nice one, you know, but that's it's all right. We, I was probably cutting them and pulling their hair out of their wool out, so, you know, fair's fair, love and war. Go get a rub down, uh, a few electrolytes and then a couple of beers, I think. It's been a, been a bit of a journey to get here, so it's always been in the back of the mind to do something like this, and... Um, this record was up for grabs and, and the cousin you hooked it up, so yeah, it's, it's pretty good. All, all the family and all that's here, everyone's come from far and wide, like people ain't seen for ages, so it's pretty cool. It's good that it's for like um, something good, not a funeral, that, that's the cool part about it. Yeah, be cool to have it on like, on record that I'm, I was in it and a part of it and yeah, I appreciate the whole opportunity of being a Rousey that's like, passes to be a part of it, so, yeah.
That was Maisie McFarlane from Franklin River Shearing Services finishing that report on that world record shearing effort in Western Australia on the weekend. They were speaking with Sophie Johnson about their uh, record that they, they set. So congratulations, big effort. I can imagine you would be very sore after shearing 1,600 lambs. That's all we have time for in the program today. Uh, we are approaching 1 o'clock. It is just about time for news. Then more on your ABC local radio this afternoon. There are so many ways to keep informed. State heritage listing does provide some important protection. It doesn't prevent any development on the parkland. Leading news and current affairs. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.